0: Enjoy the episode. Excited to welcome Pete Strobel to share the game with us. Coach Strobel is currently the head coach in the German Bundesliga of the Geese 46ers and previously served as the head coach of the basketball Braunschweig for two seasons. A player and graduate of Niagara University, Strobel started the scoring factory in 2009 upon settling in Pittsburgh after a successful nine-year career in the European Professional Leagues. He's also author of Backspin, One Player's Journey from the U.S., To Europe and back again. Coach Strobo, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Oh, this is going to be fun. We're going to dive into a bunch of topics, but uh, let's start with one. You take great pride in player development. I'm wondering how that love has helped or challenged you as a professional coach, as sometimes player development and winning seem to be at odds. You know, it's interesting you say that. I, I get that question a lot.
1: I think... That's more of an, uh, I hate to say this, but more of an American conundrum that gets thrown at me. I think in Europe, there's a, a vastly different understanding of the value of player development. I think we're so used to, and again, through the American pair of eyes, we're so used to thinking of a season as this four to six to seven to eight month thing. Whereas in Europe, it's 11 months, right? So you have one month where the kids go to the beach or something like that. Otherwise, it's always in season. I have I have kids of my own that play in the in the FIFA system. And sometimes for for my wife and I it seems like a very long season, but these kids practice and play for 10, 11 months. So I think the challenge is first kind of changing the mindset as a coach and changing the way you think about something because for sure for everybody at, at a certain stage the goal is winning games, right? So at the professional level for sure that's why we get hired and fired so we we have to make sure that we're winning games but if you look at this through a a different mindset through a different scope by making your players better individually theoretically you improve the entire team by taking individuals and scientifically eradicating their weaknesses and helping them improve not camouflaging but literally working on areas that they're not very good at I think you improve the overall team And you also prove their confidence and through time, you also develop a certain mindset where guys are used to working guys want to work hard guys kind of expect that. And you develop a certain mentality where we're going to improve here. So I think collectively it's something that I, I, and our staff, we, we take a lot of pride in is something that's very important to us, but I think there's, there's a reason for that. And it's leading towards us winning more games. It's not just about let's make players better because it sounds cool. Let's not just make players better because. You know that's what I've done for over a decade at my own company, the Scoring Factory in Pittsburgh. It's let's make players better because over
0: over time, that's going to help us win more games. Yeah, it's great stuff, and uh, we don't want to make this about America. But the one thing uh, I have coached in FIBA, and you obviously you've coached in FIBA now, you have kids going through FIBA. The one thing that I think people don't understand about player development is the FIBA rules are much friendlier for player development. Because by nature, kids get more offensive reps and more defensive reps with the shot clock.
1: Absolutely. It's 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 embarrassing to, to say and to admit that many, many states in America just, for whatever reason, and I've heard all the arguments, it costs too much money, we need another person to sit there or we don't have the equipment, the infrastructure, whatever. It's embarrassing that we don't have a shot clock in America. There, there's no other way to, to say it, to put it. So just looking at it as a father for my own kids, uh, I'm a rarity in that. I'm a, I'm a professional coach. I'm a BBL coach. I'm a BBL head coach with experience that goes into all these different youth practices, watching my own kids, and you see how many more decisions they have to make. I mean, you alluded to this in your question, how many more decisions they have to make their awareness level of time, place, space, teammates, situations, a hundred more times a game than anybody that has to go through that in America. I think Americans are amazing at at attacking one on one. We're amazing in skill development. We're amazing at being very aggressive and ball skills and and finding ways to attack mismatches. But in terms of decision making, just the clock alone increases the level of required awareness so much, and it starts with twelve year olds. It's amazing when you when you look at that here. So if you have a really good ten year old, he's already playing like that. So the course of a 10-year-old, by the time he would get to whatever college age is, be that 18 or 19, he's had nearly a decade of working in
0: an environment where he's used to thinking and being aware of the clock. Well, I love the conversation because I, I share that concept with a lot of coaches that kind of talk to me about FIBA. And I'm like, the main thing is, again, its we we think about this magical Spanish system or Serbian system or whatever one we want to say is amazing, but most of it comes back to the rules just afford the opportunity for players to, as you said, have more decisions. And that's the main thing. Absolutely. I mean, like every country is going to go
1: through a phase where Argentina can be thrown into there, too, where they go through a phase where they have a bunch of talent and they they perform amazingly well. I mean, the, the teamwork among Europeans from a very young age is something that's instilled in them. I don't know if that's a soccer culture. I don't know if that's because they're used to competing against other countries more often and Americans we compete with with AU against other cities, right? So it's, it's a different mindset, but the shot clock is definitely a big part of that. And, and I think those kids here are not trying to succeed based on pure athleticism. They're, they're succeeding based on
0: skills, which is talent acquisition, be that tactical or technical. So uh, coming back to then your experiences, how has your playing experience in Europe helped you relate to players now that you're coaching them?
1: I want to be very careful with this answer because I think there's a lot of amazing coaches through the vast end of this spectrum, be it they learn basketball in a book, be it they're a a 10 time NBA all-star. There's a lot of amazing coaches and there's no one way to get from point A to point B, be it as a player or as a coach. So for sure my past and my history played a, a huge role in my own development, but there's people better or worse than me that had a much different past. So I think as a player, it helped me and I can only speak about me. It helped me to see, to know, to feel, to to understand what it's like, what life is like off the court for these guys that come and jump off a 10, 12, 14 hour flight, land in an environment where you don't speak the language, where the people around you look different, eat different foods, sound different, move different, stare at you differently. I think it's it's, it's a a positive thing that I have that experience to know that because I I had to live that myself. I was forced my first year in France, for example, if I wanted to eat, I had to learn to speak French because they weren't very welcoming in terms of, yeah, we'll speak English too. Right. So it forced me to grain myself in a, in that culture. And I I had to acclimate very, very fast to fit in. And that helped me throughout my career. And that's probably Obviously, advice that I give to every player that I coach here, rookies and otherwise, you know, do the best you can to to pick up some of the language, try to fit in, observe and imitate what you see the, the local culture doing, try their foods, swallow it down if it doesn't taste good and be polite and just learn to order something different on the menu next time. But I think that's helped me. So on the court, obviously, I have experience of knowing what it feels like to play in different environments with different coaches with the quote unquote Yugoslavian school with the, this school, the that school, and seeing different tactical things playing with the Austrian national team, it gave me a huge head-started advantage just to open my mind from what I, I've experienced previously as an American. But I must say that there's a lot of hungry coaches out there, and I've been lucky enough to come across many of them, old and young, American and otherwise, European and otherwise basketball, and I, I think a lot of this goes to to you and your work and a lot of people like you around the world that are sharing knowledge, right? I think basketball is this special game where we all want it to be the number one sport. And I think soccer still can can hold that trophy very high, but we want basketball to be the number one sport. It's a fun game where you don't need a whole lot of equipment and kids can go play basically for free in the streets. There's guys out there using resources, utilizing resources, sharing knowledge. So I think there's a lot of very intelligent basketball players out there. And I think more often than not, we can also not steal, but borrow and, and absorb information also from other sports. But I think that's, that's the beautiful part about basketball and coaching is you can take part from the Serbian coach, from the Spanish coach, from the coach from Texas, from the guy that's just traveled to someplace in Lithuania, from the guy that just did a clinic in Nebraska. I think basketball is beautiful in many, many ways knowledge is power, that's something that I truly believe in. So with all the books and the resources and the videos available, especially during this COVID time that we're going through, it's amazing, and special. Anybody that doesn't take advantage, I think is is wasting time to be brutally honest, but my journey has been my journey and I think yours has been yours.
0: And the beautiful part of all this is we're using technology to, to share knowledge. That's a great answer, coach. Great answer. And uh, we can hear your passion for coaching and basketball and your voice. And you mentioned soccer. I'm curious, you having been in a lot of countries where their soccer influence exists from coaching down to their academies. Can you talk about some of the things that you've taken away from being in this soccer culture that have helped you as a basketball coach develop?
1: yeah it's it's a it's amazing so every kid here and i'm generalizing of course i'm sure there's one yep. kid i'm familiar, that doesn't grow up playing soccer but it feels like right? it feels like every single kid here grows up playing soccer and soccer is a game where there's one ball and there's a bunch of kids running around and they learn spacing they learn angles there's always these these little triangles that are forming all over the the course of the field and decisions have to be very fast you cannot dribble or kick it around 17 times by yourself you have to pass it somebody you have to sprint you have to get to a new spot hope to get it back that doesn't happen you sprint to a new spot because he passed it to somebody else so these kids grow up becoming very very agile becoming very very good with their feet learning angles and mastering angles and that takes teamwork right so it's i think all those kids are, are learning things that we simply do not learn if you grow up only playing basketball on the flip side of that coin, I, as a basketball coach, I really do wish that every young basketball player grew up playing soccer for the reasons that I just mentioned. I think it's very, very good for their minds. And I think it's very, very good for spatial awareness. I think spatial awareness, decision-making, these are trends that are starting to catch on a little bit more now in terms of teaching and what coaches try to implement and incorporate into training sessions. Those are things that you can talk about you can tell somebody about but you have to force somebody to get in situations where you make mistakes because i think we all learn through mistakes that's the best way to learn so those kids they go through i don't know how many countless hours of kicking sprinting running reading kicking sprinting running to different angles and reading those angles i think that's invaluable and i think that's something that we're starting to see and try to do now more in basketball with small-sided games something we're trying to
0: emulate and I think it's gonna pay big, big dividends. It's great stuff. And you mentioned the mistake culture and mistakes being necessary for learning. Can you talk to us, cause you've experienced that both in developing players at the scoring factory, and then of course, as a coach overseas. So can you talk about how you create that culture of acceptance of a mistake in the sense that it's positive for learning?
1: Something I say a lot in practice is make your mistakes Monday through Friday so we don't make them on Saturday and Sunday, right? So I, I try to encourage our players, ball handling drills, for example. Dribble as hard as you possibly can. Try to put a hole in the floor. Make sure you're not staring straight ahead. Make sure you're looking around. Make sure you're aware. See everything that's going on in this gym. See your teammates. But really try to pound that ball. Try to really get low. Try to really have wide feet. Try to sprint as fast as you can when you're doing certain movements. You lose the ball, great. Go get it repeated. But I think building that culture is something you really have to commit to as a, as a coaching staff because most of the time kids are used to getting yelled at when they lose the ball by doing a simple behind the back. So now what do they do? They look to find the ball to make sure they don't lose it, which is completely opposite of what you need to be able to do in a game. So I think you have to to build that culture step by step. I think you also, and and I love video. Video is very, very important for the human mind in terms of learning because otherwise it's the coach's words, which may sound like an opinion to a player, whereas video doesn't lie, right? So I think video can also be incorporated in practice so players can see those drills, see the things they're doing, but then you take that into the game when a player drives baseline and the person doesn't drift to the corner, the teammate doesn't drift to the corner, when you're working on a certain pick and roll defense, when you're talking about a player's follow through, when you're talking about a box out, all those things you can use video to show them, but you have to let them know that you're allowed to make one mistake. This is why we work on it. This is why we work on this in practice. And then build that culture where they know, okay, I'm going to tell you one time. I'm going to show you one time. You're going to hear me talking to your teammates one time about that. But then I think you need to get to a point where we also hold them accountable. And that's when coaches invariably, me included, raise our voices, use probably sometimes not so nice words, but I I think you need to keep the tension level high. So there's a certain focus level, but players need to feel that practice time is when you should make mistakes. You have to be able to try something. Basketball's a beautiful game. Basketball is a fun game. But we're not robots, we want players to be artistic. I think if we look through time at my favorite players, your favorite players, people's favorite players, are, they did something that was beautiful. They did something that was jazz-like. They did something that was Picasso-like. So if you see, think of a, a Ginobili, there was something beautiful in the way he played. There was something very artistic in the way he played. There was something different because he took chances. If, if we take away those chances and we put players at a young age in handcuffs, they're never going to build the confidence or the skills to be able to do that at a high level.
0: Hey coach, brief introduction from the podcast. Have you heard of Spotify green room? Spotify green room is a free audio only social media platform for sports fans Start joining ongoing conversations, watch games together, react to the biggest news, rumors and games. Talk with other sports fans, insiders, athletes and executives in real time. I host a room every Tuesday at 9 PM, come through and talk with me live. All you need to do is download the Spotify Green Room app free in the iOS or Android app store, create a profile, link your Twitter and join the conversation. Follow me at Bball Immersion on Twitter to be notified when my room goes live. Hey, coach, I really appreciate you listening to the basketball podcast, and I hope you will consider supporting it and your coaching even more as the countdown is over. It's here. It's live. It's been years in the making. We have launched our newly redesigned website at basketballimmersion.com. Basketball immersion is an effective player development tool because we focus on coach development. Since we know the greatest player development is coach development, we support and stimulate change in you as a coach. Now is the time to immerse yourself in learning. In our community, we'll show you how to get specific outcomes. Using comprehensive video and course based learning, as well as community interaction and expert sharing in our master classes, you will get specific outcomes to stimulate add to make over or improve your coaching join our community today at basketball and learn what is possible well i love that like the ginobili example is a great one and it's 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 an imagine it's like a a freedom that comes from permission and then that fosters creativity right and too many coaches take away that permission as you just talked about about making mistakes which ultimately leads to this jazz, this creativity that they can they can have a solution because they're able to be free. And,
1: and we all learn through trial and error. So I would like to add that. So if you never try, you're not going to figure out the solution to that problem. And I think we as humans, we're here designed, at least the smart ones, we're engineers, we're designed to find solutions to problems if you ask somebody what came first, the can or the can opener, there was no reason to have a can opener before they had a can, right?
0: So you have to go step by step through this process. And it's a learning process. So trial and error, you brought that up. And that goes into one of my other questions about your background, which is another strength of probably your development is that you were involved in the scoring factory, and you had a chance to have trial and error as a coach as well, without having this high pressure environment where you could Try concepts and then see if you like them. And if not, throw them away. And then keep going through this process, which I imagine has developed you quite a bit. I think one of the, the most beautiful things of, of working in pure player development
1: is seeing the light bulb go off in some young players' head when they finally figure out why the instruction you're giving them leads to the results that they and or their parents brought them there for. Right. So for sure, years and years of trial and error for players, but also as coaches. But one of the keys is that in a, pure player development environment, you're not focused on wins. You're not focused on playing time. You're not focused on any of those high pressure, high stress tension areas that, that coaches go through. So I think when you're teaching, you can take some chances to make sure. And this means slowing down and backing up two steps sometimes in order to take many steps forward to really, really talk about footwork to really help them feel and move their feet and get their hands in the right position so trial and error is something that that i think all of us go through and i loved every minute of that i mean player development is something that's it gives me a very very good feeling right it's it's something like when you give a woman roses they feel good i'm generalizing but they feel so me as a human me as a coach when you see a player improve it makes me feel very good we had a player on our team last year named kareem yallo who for many, many years, young, talented, athletic, really, really high motor, people said he couldn't shoot, he couldn't dribble, he couldn't use his left hand. And those are three areas. I had him for two years that we worked on very, very hard. And he climbed the ladder, and climbed the ladder, and climbed the ladder. He's going to be a guy that's going to be a high-level pro for many, many years. Last year, he shot 38% from three. Nobody would have thought that was possible. Everybody in German basketball would have laughed if you said Kareem Yalo's ever going to shoot 38%. But Kareem Yalo put in the work. Kareem Yalo sat in the chair that I told him to work on his form on. Kareem Yalo showed up. If I told him 7 a.m. or 1 p.m. or 7 p.m. at night, he showed up and he put in the work. He watched the video. He listened. He worked on it over and over and over. He worked on his footwork and through time with proper repetition, he improved. So that's something that I really enjoy, but it is a two-way street. You need players that, that really, truly want to get better, and they're going to learn through trial and error just like we are. But that's something I I think coaches have to always look in the mirror and think about, why do I do this? Because if you're only doing it for you, I think you're you're a selfish human. You know, we all have egos. It feels good to to win games and get pats on the back and to win trophies and to duck your neck forward to get medals. But we should be doing it for the greater good. And I personally, I I can only speak for myself, I really, really enjoy making people better. I want to win every game we play. I'm pissed off every single time we lose. I'm angry when players make mistakes in games because I remember working on those areas in practice, but through the course of time, and this is a very, take a step back, look at this, the big picture. I want to make people better. And and that's something that I'm going to continue to do. That's something that last year, the year before that, the year before that, this season, next season, next season, I'm going to continue to do because for me, I know that that works. I'm going to make sure that every link that we have is stronger. So our team fights stronger better together through the course of a very long season
0: it's great stuff and uh we can see your philosophy shining through and uh, you mentioned something about dribbling when we talked just a little bit before and I want to come back to that because it's something that always struck me that dribbling is so dynamic but we train it so mechanically and you referred to that and kind of in your statement so I'd like you to expand on that a little bit more
1: so the evolution of, of teaching, of, of shooting, of ball hitting, of rebounding, I think the game has changed a lot. You know, it, it still happens to me that I'm somewhere in America at some park and you see some dad teaching their kid how to shoot. And it's like they put the ball in their forehead. They, they bend their knees and they start from there. It's almost like me starting to punch somebody. And my hand's are already out in front of me. It's like I'm, yeah. I'm not going to generate any power. Me trying to throw a football like Tom Brady, but I'm starting with the ball in front of me. I'm not going to be able to generate the necessary force in order to do that. So I think shooting ball handling, all these technical skills have evolved because the game has changed because there's a lot of very, very good athletes on the, on the court these days. Right. So I think with ball handling, I think it's fantastic that Steph Curry, maybe the world's best example of a, of a highly skilled guy does so many ball handling drills and people have made his routine a little bit famous that he does pregame. I like dynamic ball handling drills. I think there's a time and a place for cones. I think there's a time and a place for tennis balls. I think there's a time and a place for all kinds of tricks to to stimulate and challenge. But I I think overall, juggling is something to me that should maybe be 1% of the time. And dribbling one basketball should be 90% of the time, right? Two ball ball handling drills, great, but not all the time. If you want to get better in a game, I think there's drills that you need to do ideally with pressure, ideally with a defender, ideally with some type of thought and decision that has to be made. So when we work on ball handling drills as a team, it's different than when we're working on individual stuff because individually we're working on moves in finishing areas and how to handle pressure to run a set, how to come off a handoff, how to attack and then come back to use your weaker hand, how to set up the pick and roll, right? So when we're working on team ball handling drills, there's a number of things i'm trying to kill many birds with one stone i'm trying to make sure they get loose i'm trying to make sure they get warm i'm trying to stimulate some weak hand stuff but i want them moving as much as possible so we do many different ball handling drills with with every team that i'm ever going to be on but i want movement i want awareness and i want some different type of challenge so we're not going to do the same thing often a whole lot i want there to be some new thought factor that's involved so they're, they're not robots and they're not machines. And they're not just like, like in, the, in the printing press, just stamping out the same thing over and over because basketball is a very dynamic game. You're gonna have different size defenders, different speed defenders. Sometimes they're gonna run and jump. Sometimes you're gonna be able to go around. So you need many, many different moves and stimulants to help prepare you for what you're gonna need. You have to be able to go through your legs, forward, backward. You have to be able to go behind your back. You have to be able to spin, pulling or pushing. You have to be able to do it in and out. And then you have to be able to do all those things equally with either hand, but you can't just do that just in a basement. So this is one of the things I think hurt a lot of youth basketball is all the, the Zoom workouts that were only ball handling. I think push-ups are great. I think leg races are great. I think planks are great. Ball handling stationary is great, but kids do need to get out and play. They need to play one-on-one. I think you can work on ball handling where you say, we're not even focused on the basket right now. We're going to take away the hoop. We're just working on, can I get to this spot? Or can I handle it for this many dribbles? Or can I pass it, get open, initiate contact, and then get the ball back? So I think there's things you can do ball handling wise that are not just standing there, just dribbling the ball with one hand, or just walking and dribbling through your legs. I think there has to be dynamic and mental instruments added to that.
0: Well, I love it, and you talked about mixing ball handling into basically your, your, your game-based stuff because that's where you ball handle in a game. So it makes sense. The other part I want to emphasize is that Steph Curry, when we see that, we're seeing him do his pre-game comfort and confidence routine. That has nothing to do with development, and I think that's where people misconstrue that, interpret that as, "Oh, that's what I should be doing." Well, that's him just getting comfortable before a game. Isn't that completely different than development? I think that's his routine. I think yeah. that that's his routine that
1: makes him feel ready just like players have a shooter around just like players sometimes put on their left sock before the right sock. some players drink a coffee i think that's his routine right and clearly that works for him we have to admit him being one of the best highly skilled shooters ball handlers on earth that works for him but we don't know everything he does behind the scenes and what also got him to this level he's a highly highly talented guy that's probably been around many many good coaches that have challenged and stimulated him in ways
0: far beyond what we're allowed to see for a couple of minutes before a game starts. There's no question. And you mentioned dribbling versus pressure, which is a great segue into some things I want to ask you about as well, which is you're big on full court pressure. And that always starts from the point guard. Can you expand on that philosophy?
1: Yeah. I I mean, for, for me defensively, that's, that's who I am. That's who I want our teams to be. That's how I want us to play. I, I think the starting point just like reading a book, you you see a cover on the book, right? So the cover, the starting point for, for every game, for every possession for the other team is the point guard guarding the other team's point guard. Could be the two, then then it's the two, okay? But it's it's that point guard pressure, making sure that they, they realize this is not going to be easy. And it's not about getting steals. It's not about getting a steal. It's about putting pressure. It's about making them work. It's about being close enough to touch. It's about trying to turn them. It's about making sure that you don't commit silly fouls. I think that's where that starts. And that really does help
0: a team set the tone for the rest of the defensive possession. It's great. And, uh, you know, some of the things that I really enjoy about diving into your full court philosophy a little bit is some of the phrasing. And one of the phrases I really loved is you have to earn every dribble. So you want to make them earn every dribble. Can you expand on that?
1: Yeah, I I don't want anybody, and this may sound really, really simple or really, really funny, but I I don't want a point guard from the other team to be able to just dribble down the court at his pace with his strong hand and be able to signal out plays. I don't don't want him to be able to signal. I want him to feel a little bit uncomfortable. I want him to maybe have to turn his back a little bit. I want him to have to do some type of change of direction move, so maybe he misses an open teammate. I want him to either be sped up or slowed down, whatever it is that he wants. I wanna give him the opposite. I want him to feel that pressure where he's not gonna be able to get exactly what he wants. I want it to be very, very uncomfortable. Every dribble must be earned. There's not gonna be any dribble where we say here, you can have this one, enjoy this one. This is our Christmas present to you. I want them to feel they have to work against us. And if if we have players that don't do that, they're gonna sit on the bench. And I think through that repetition and through that learning, Just like pavlov's experiment they're going to know that when they step on the floor they have to play a
0: certain way and it goes perfectly with this concept of the half-court touch which i love a concrete display or expression of this pressure
1: i like i like visual cues you know so so here i am sitting in germany and americans are very again to generalize we we believe we can do anything we can we can go to the moon we can be a rock star we can start a new company can be anything we want and that's our rebellious mindset that gives us the creativity to produce all of the amazing humans that have that have had that american mindset right in germany to generalize you have engineers you have thinkers you have people that follow rules you have people that that put things in this right area for whatever reason right everything they do is is relatively structured and i appreciate that you can understand that they have three, four, five different trash cans that they use. They separate their trash in ways that Americans can never understand, right? Paper goes in one, recycling in another. They put the banana peels in a different one. Then there's the regular trash. Then there's the glass. And for an American, we don't know. So a lot of Americans get in trouble here. They just throw everything in in the glass until the neighbor knocks on the door before you get a letter from the local police magistrate or something like that, right? So I like rules. I like things that you can see that are not an opinion. I don't want to ask a player, did you play hard defense? And they say, yeah. And another player says, I don't know if I did. There's too many gray areas right there. I think having a visual cue, the half-court touch, you can make sure you did exactly what I wanted as a coach. And I can show you that on video right now. You either touch them or you didn't, right? It's a very, very clear signal. And to touch somebody, that means I have to be close. That means I have to be at least one arm's length away. I have to be close enough to touch them. So if I'm that close, if I have that distance, I know that I'm there to put the pressure. Me as a coach, I feel confident to know that my player was there where he needs to be. And I can see that. They can see that. Their teammates can see that. We can feel that. We can set the tone. So the half-court touch is a very, very simple term, but it's a huge part of our initial defensive philosophy to make sure that our team is doing what we need to do. And that goes for every position. I mean, the, the center very rarely will bring the ball up the floor unless you're playing some crazy type of pressure and you have all kinds of great denial taking place. But for those other four guys, they know hundred percent of the time, if your man dribbles across the court, there's a half court touch. And we can see that they know that it's not an opinion thing. It's not, did you play hard? Do you think that you made a good decision there?
0: No. Did you touch? Did you not? So it's literally a touch. Uh, can you talk about, yeah, can see hand on their body? Yeah. And talk about that. And you don't care where they touch. It's just literally a touch.
1: It's typically going to be, I mean, first of all, we have to be very, very careful with, you can't touch somebody with two hands. Of if course. You put two hands, even if two little index fingers, referees are going to call fouls and we don't want that. We're not trying to foul anybody. We're not trying to, we're not trying to do anything dirty. We're not trying to be illegal. We don't want to foul. We just want to play great defense. We want to play great defense. We want to slide. We want to sprint. We want to use our chest. We want to be there. We want to be there. And I think that's key. So when I say touching, it's typically going to be either a hand or an arm bar on the hip area. But there's there's going to be a touch. And you'll see guys sometimes, when you see their minds working, like, oh, crap, I'm getting beat. I got to get back in front. And they get back in front. and it's Maybe maybe it is just a little bit of a finger. And then they can say, coach, I touched them, And I can say, you're right. You did. But I could also say you didn't if they didn't. So that's, that's important. It's, it's not a hit. It's not an aggressive elbow. It's not a trip. I don't want any fouls. I'm not trying to waste fouls in this area at
0: all. I just want to make sure that my players are there where they're supposed to be to play aggressive defense. Well, it's, it's meant to be an annoyance, right? More than anything. And uh, that's, that's the analogy that someone gave me a long time ago was thinking about, okay, Pete's writing a test and Chris is standing right by him and constantly just reaching out and touching him. And how annoying that is to be able to write that test. And that's a great analogy for what you're explaining, which I love your terminology to this. Chinese water torture, right? Just that, that drip over and over and over, over and over and over. Talk to me about off the ball. Are we trying to do a similar thing off the ball?
1: Off the ball, first of all, I want to make sure that we're playing defense as a team. I would love to have the five best individual defensive players in the world. That's not always going to be the case. Some guys are simply more athletic than others. Some guys have better instincts than others. I want to make sure we have all five guys playing team defense. So if I'm asking and demanding and requiring that we have one guy close enough to touch, he's going to get beat at some point in time. It's inevitable. It's logical. It's feasible. And we have to expect it, right? So that means those other four guys have to be prepared for that. They have to be ready for that. They have to anticipate that. So we can't have four guys in denial somewhere. We need four guys that are in help side. We need four guys that are ready to move as the ball moves. I literally want all five guys moving with the ball. I don't want anybody in denial. There are certain game plans. There are certain teams or certain players that we're going to do different things, but we're talking about generalizations right now. I want all five guys to move when the ball moves every single time. And that's something that we work very hard on. I mean, there's, simple simple drills that you can manipulate in a myriad number of ways like shell to work on various tactical things that you want to make sure your team incorporates so we work on drill work all the time we start practice every day with defense we work on defense every single day we make sure that they understand our terminology our structure our rotations i want all five guys moving so when you ask when that one guy's putting that pressure we have four other guys that are aware of that and equally aware of their man and where their man's moving and how all of these pieces, just like we talked about soccer earlier, how all of these angles are constantly changing and how we need to change and morph as the offense moves around.
0: So back to the the full court pressure concept and the half court touch. Uh, talk to me about a scarecrow. What is a scarecrow?
1: Scarecrow is. I mean, uh, the scarecrow is the. For lack of a better term, it's some burlap sacks that were filled up with hay to scare crows away from the fields, right? So I'm not a farmer. I I do know the terminology. So I I don't want fouls. We don't want to foul anybody. We want to play great defense. So if I can get to the point, and I don't know if you can see my hands outstretched, but if I can get to the point where I'm showing the referees my hands, I'm showing them, I'm not fouling right now. I don't want to waste a foul. This is not what we're trying to do. There are some tactical times where you do want to use a foul. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about when I get beat, I'm close enough to touch. I'm putting pressure. The guy made a great move. I made a silly reach that I should not have made. He was quicker than me. He went around me. I'm not going to just run behind him. I'm not going to continue to try to slide. If you set up the world's fastest man and somebody else that gets to sprint and you make the fastest man slide, the runner's going to win every single time, right? So we have to make sure that our, our people know our players are are aware and can plan at some point in time you are going to get beat i don't want them planning on emergencies but we have to expect that at some point in time you're going to get beat i want you to sprint i want your arms to be out and stressed to show the referee i'm not fouling right now but i want you to try to keep contact and try to get back into position to get back in front it's not easy but that's our goal and you need to have goals in basketball and that's our goal our goal first is not to get beat once we get beat our scarecrows our next logical transition And that's the next part of our checklist, what we're going to do to make sure that I know you're following the instructions to continue to put pressure on your man until he passes. Once he passes,
0: everything shifts. But as long as I'm still guarding the ball, I have to scarecrow and stay involved. Yeah. And then talk to me then about the teaching points for the -the off-the-ball defender about when to help or not in those situations. What are some of the cues that you give them?
1: Yeah, I think there's a, a number of different tactical things that you could do i think a lot of people instinctively go to the the quote-unquote peel switch right i think that's something that can happen depending on the side of the floor where people are is an overload is it transition or is it five on five i think there's some things like that that i don't want to give away too much but there's there's certain technical things that we work on all the time in practice emergency situations we'll call them and those automatics that come with it but there's other things where We want to build them to the point where the other four guys, we're not talking about transition. Those other four guys are in position to anticipate that. And we know our rotations of where we're going to go. So again, I don't want to give away too much, but there's, there's stuff that, that does happen. People will get beat. People will get beat. It's a part of basketball. As much as I would love to, it's never going to happen. We're not going to keep a professional Bundesliga team to zero points. It's, I mean, that's just not going to happen. We want to make them take tough shots. We want to make them work in every single possession. We want to make sure that we can outwork them through the course of the game. Because quite frankly, there's there's some very, very good teams in this league. There's two Euroleague teams, there's several Euro Cup teams, there's a bunch of Champions League and Euro, Europe Cup teams. There's many teams that play international with much larger budgets than us. So theoretically, if they can purchase and hire more expensive players. We need a way in order to win that game if we can't just buy better players. So back to player development, we have to make them better. We have to improve their shooting, their ball handling, their decision-making, their defense. We have to improve all that. And then as a group, as a unit, we have to function. We have to have amazing chemistry, defensively, offensively, off the court. We need amazing defensive chemistry so we can slow down these high-powered teams that have some very, very good pieces. And our, our key is that we're not a piece we're a unit. We want to be a team out there playing great defense, and that's that's not as easy as the words that just came out of my mouth. That's it's a real process.
0: Hey, coach! Brief interruption from the podcast. Have you heard of Spotify Green Room? Spotify Green Room is a free audio-only social media platform for sports fans. Start joining ongoing conversations, watch games together, react to the biggest news, rumors, and games, talk with other sports fans, insiders, athletes, and executives in real time. I host a room every Tuesday at 9 p.m., come through and talk with me live. All you need to do is download the Spotify Green Room app free in the iOS or Android App Store, create a profile, link your Twitter, and join the conversation. Follow me at B-Ball Immersion on Twitter to be notified when my room goes live. Coach, we appreciate your support of our sponsors that help make the basketball podcast available to you. Kansas City Steak Company wants to make this your best grilling season ever. Visit KansasCitySteaks.com and get 15% off your order and free shipping with code SD. Kansas City Steaks has everything you need to fire up the grill. Enjoy their butter tender filet mignon hearty Kansas City strip steaks and savory ribeyes. It's been a hard year, so enjoy being together again by bringing the steakhouse to your house. With Kansas City Steaks... Go to KansasCitySteaks.com and get 15% off your order and free shipping with code SD at checkout. That's KansasCitySteaks.com, code SD. Don't we wish it was, yes. Uh, it is a real process. And uh, I'm, I'm coming back to something you said earlier about the importance of visual cues. I'm curious then defensively, do you emphasize a lot of verbal cues as well? Or do you try and get them attuned to some of the visual cues to be able to, as we said, rotate or not rotate, et cetera?
1: Both. I mean, I, I think something that's very, very important for me is to make sure that my staff, all right, so our assistant coach Steve Reed, our assistant coach Paddy Ungar, our assistant coach Raleigh Leno. it's important that we're all on the same page. It's important that the terminology, the words that come out of my mouth are the same words that come out of their mouth and vice versa. So I need the players in practice to hear this, this, this megaphone coming from all different directions of the verbal cues that we need the location on the floor, the hand placement, the footwork. They need to hear that over and over and over. And then when we're going through, I don't want to say drill work, but when we're giving them a chance to now put this into play in scrimmaging, for lack of a better term, in preseason games, we're trying to do the same thing, but you have to take it back a notch because, again, you have to let them make mistakes. You have to let them work through and struggle through difficult situations that you. You can't prepare for everything. We try. I try. I think every coach tries to to pre-game plan for every scenario. We study video. We watch the team. And then they have a new play. Or they have a new player. Or the guy shows that he can actually go this way or that way. Or he has a better post game than you thought. Or wow, he made more threes. And and instinctively, sometimes you want to yell at your assistant coach. I thought you said his three-point percentage was this. But the guy made a bunch of threes, right? So the players have to get used to not just game planning, but reading the flow of the game, feeling the game, making in-game adjustments. And that's something you have to let them and encourage them to do. It's not always easy to take a step back, but I think through the course of preseason, which luckily we have a lot of time, you you have to scream at them, yell at them, teach them, remind them, go through enough repetitions, let them make mistakes, show them on video, and repeat that process over and over to get to the point where I think both sides trust each other, be that coaches and players, both sides trust each other enough to know that we're on the same page. We're doing what we're required to do. We're not going to keep them to zero. We need to make every shot difficult and try to force them into whatever it is that they don't want. So when you're talking about terminology, that's absolutely huge. And, And I've been in different places before, be it as a guest in practice or otherwise where Sometimes you hear an assistant coach say something, a player says something different because that's what he's used to saying in college. And then the head coach is saying something else because that's what he's used to saying. You have to make sure that everybody in that gym, everybody that's wearing that color,
0: right? They're they're saying the same words because those words really do mean something. Words are powerful. So I want to pull something out of what you said to highlight for everyone. And that's that, I mean, we really think defense has absolutes too much, right? Rather than the reality is many times you just have to figure it out. And the absolutes are the structure or the template or the base that helps them figure it out. But this also comes back to your mistake culture, which is you make mistakes all the time on defense. Then you have to figure it out, right?
1: All the time. I mean, it, to take that to the next level, there's future Hall of Fame coaches in our league. I mean, last year, Aito, like he's a legendary, legendary coach that has coached guys like Ricky Rubio. Uh, amazing guys. Everybody should know who he is. If not, please go Google him. Okay. Legendary coaches, Andrea Trinchieri of Bayern Munich right now, right? Early team, playoff team, legendary coach that is still on the way up, right? Like this guy's a future hall of fame guy. He might coach in the NBA, he might coach in the early, nobody knows, but he's amazing, right? His playbook has to be this thick. So if, <laughs> yeah. if you try to game plan based on his playbook, you're expecting your players to have albert einstein type processing capabilities you can't memorize that many plays so you have to get to the point where your players understand principles how do we guard a handoff how are we guarding pick and rolls how are we guarding in the post how are we guarding a cross screen what do we want to do when they do a iverson what are we going to do against a guarded guard screen you have to get to the point where you have principles that you trust principles that are now cemented in stone from repetition after repetition and video work and repetition and drills and preseason games, you have to have all of that re- pretty much set in stone, and then have the flexibility to know there's they're going to slip a screen at some point. You thought they were going to set a guard to guard screen, but now they slip. So now what do you do, right? Or we try to send him into the post, but then he kicked it out faster than we thought, or he kept the dribble alive. We thought he was going to hold it, but he kept the dribble alive. So you have to to get to the point where you're you're flexible and fluid enough to adjust because that's what basketball is. Basketball is not a game where we take a turn and then you take a turn. It's not even like that. The, The game is moving back and forth. And I think that's the beauty of the game is every game is very, very different. We look at statistics and I'm a guy that really does enjoy analytics and the evolution of how this is helping us educate ourselves of where some areas are that can help us win games, right? But what you see and what you read sometimes don't match. And how you plan might not be how that game is going to unfold. So you have to be ready for both.
0: Uh, it's great stuff. And just speaks to the high variability of basketball, where again, it's not, we can't script and, you know, organize and control every play. So it speaks to that. Uh, another thing, like there's an intersection in your background in terms of player development and high level coaching. So I'm curious how that's approach or how that's impacted your approach to teaching defensive player development, specifically around, let's start with, say, something like defensive footwork. How have those two things intersected to help you develop those things? I'm, I'm going to take
1: a step back and say something that right now that people ask me all the time, who were some coaches that had a huge influence on me? Not to, to be difficult, but I would say that teachers have had a huge influence on me, right? So I, I've been screamed at, I've been cussed out, I've been coddled, I've been somebody's favorite. I've been somebody's last guy on the roster. I've been somebody's third row in math class. I've been somebody's front of the front and center for, I don't know, whatever elective I had in 11th grade. So I think teachers, the, the beauty in teaching is, is getting people to improve and figuring out how do they learn? Do they learn by watching? Do they learn by doing? Do they learn by, by actually drawing it out themselves? Do they learn by seeing somebody else draw it out? Does the guy like to be front in line or would he rather go to third in line? Can you just tell him and that's enough? Or do you need to tell him 13 times? Do you have to yell at him or do you have to like put your arm around him and make sure he understands him and show him really nicely? So I think the beauty in teaching is that you learn people. So I've had, I don't know how many countless reps of teaching people, be it a sixth grade girl that really played softball, but her mom wanted her to learn how to shoot to DJ Kennedy, who's a monster in every single way but still works and wants to get better and wants to improve every single summer. So that whole spectrum of players between high-level pros to to little kids, I've taught rich kids, I've taught poor kids, I've taught tall kids, short kids, American kids, white, black, Mexican, Chinese, the whole spectrum. And I think that's made me a better coach. So I think back to your question of teaching defense, teaching offense, just pure teaching, it's a passion of mine. I love to teach. You know, I'm I'm a father of four. There's not a, a second that goes by that I'm not teaching something somewhere at some point in time. And through teaching, I continue to learn. So to teach defense, every time you do it, you, you, the whole time I'm reading them, their eyes, they're feeling that the, the emanations coming from their body. Do they understand what I'm saying or are they pretending? Do they feel it? Do they not? Are they gonna mess this up? Or do they have a question? Or do I see the person on the corner of my eye that's saying, Coach, do you mean like this, right? So I think teaching is something that the more that we take time and really slow things down to make sure that every player in that gym is on the same page, the better. The hard part with coaching is we feel and we have pressure, we have limited time. So somebody's coming in before or after you, and there's some youth team for us coming in before us or after us, or in America, you got volleyball coming in before or after. So we have this limited gym time you have to make sure they run. So you have to do some three and two, two and one. You have to make sure they work on the ball. You got to get some shooting in. You got to go five on five at some point. You got to do your skill work. You got to do some defensive stuff. You're trying to cram all of this in to whatever limited window you have, be that two hours or whatever it is that you have. And then afterwards, you got to make sure they stretch. You got to make sure they roll out. You got to make sure you warm them up properly. So you're trying to manage all this time. It takes time to slow it down. It takes time to take a step forward and really get in their face and really help them to see and feel and understand exactly why you want their foot on this side, why you want them to close out this way, why you want them to scream at this moment and later because that's too late. So I think slowing it down is is huge in order for you to speed it up later. So I think great teachers have have a feel of how to do that. So I've been lucky enough to be around a lot of great teachers. and, And I cannot say that they're all just basketball coaches. I'm thankful for every coach I've ever had but I'm also thankful for every teacher I've ever had, because it's a, it's a hard business. It's a hard gig sometimes to, to have people that maybe don't want to learn at that moment. And you have to get some information from your knowledge base into their entity to get them to do something that's good for everybody. And in basketball, I have to make sure that they do that or else we get fired, right? In, in, in our line of work, if they don't do exactly what I want, we don't win. And if you don't win people get fired over that. So it's a, it's a fine line. It's a balance, but I I take a lot of pride in teaching. I enjoy teaching. I enjoy really breaking things down, but then you got to make sure that you do that so you can not speed it up and you, you increase the tempo and the pace and the energy level and the aggressiveness. So it's uncomfortable and almost harder than it will ever actually be in a game. So you find out, okay, how much do they really know right now? How much did they process? And then you got to come back the next day and do it even better. So, Getting them to to do it a certain way, you have to figure out who is the audience. I think that's key because all of them learn differently. You have a group of twelve to fifteen guys, but it's really a bunch of individuals that you're trying to get on the same page. And I think that requires a certain touch, and that's where your assistant coaches are are huge because no one man can communicate to everybody the right way, the same way, the correct way every single time. You need a you need a staff, and you need to divide up players and be on the same page and make sure that everybody's getting the message in the way that they need it to process the information
0: that you want them to, to make sure that they do things correctly to try to win games. I love your love for teaching. We definitely share that. And uh, you mentioned, obviously, time on task, which is this importance of keeping people on task in this very limited window that you have. And I imagine that's a part of it. But the part I want to highlight is what you talked about with slow learning, because this is such a challenge for a lot of North American coaches to think about if we're teaching slowly or we're doing stuff slowly, then we're not intense. And that seems to be what they'd rather have is intensity than learning. And you can't always have both at the same time. And I think you spoke to that, which I think is something we want to reinforce for coaches. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I I think you need both. I think if you only, the gym
1: cannot be the library 24 seven. So it can't just be this very happy, place where everybody feels very comfortable and they can bring their teddy bear. It can't be that and it should never really honestly be that. but you need a healthy balance between that high level aggressive tension and the the slowing down to make sure they understand it. you need both and that's I think that comes with with effort for coaches and trial and error but I, I think coaches will find that only screaming
0: does not work and only slow teaching also does not work. Yeah, it's a great balance. And the art of coaching is really what it's all about. And I want to get your thoughts. Another terminology that you use is the difference between bullet and rainbow passes and how they impact your defense. Can you talk about those two things?
1: Yeah, so we use two terms and it really should be one, right? We, we try to talk about the laser or the bullet. They're both, I try not to use the bullet for the same reason the Washington Wizards, yeah. name, yeah. right? but it is, a, it is a term that comes out of my mouth. So we don't want passes. We don't want to allow passes to just go from point A to point B with, with a high velocity. We don't want that because that's it's really hard to rotate out of that. It's hard for those other four guys to get into position because, I mean, we talk about this in offense, don't dribble the ball to the floor, pass the ball to the floor because it moves faster than somebody dribbling, somebody running with the ball. So in order to help our defense, we need amazing pressure. So the same thing you would do with little kids in a gym, teaching them to mirror the ball. We need to make sure that we're making passes hard. Ideally, we're making a pass go so high in the air, it's shaped like a rainbow. We want that ball to go all the way to the ceiling if possible. That would be best case scenario. Try to force teams to throw really high passes, which gives us a chance to sprint and get into position. I mean, it's it's a very, very simple thing. It's a mathematical thing. It's a an angles and a geometry thing that, for whatever reason, players don't think about. Players, we we we, we have to... Tell them that they're very smart when they are, but also tell them that that was not very smart when they do something that we would say years ago was stupid, right? So we have to make sure they understand that. We have to make sure they understand the geometry of that. And so I want players, when I'm teaching them, to know the why. So the why is you're helping your teammates by forcing this rainbow pass to get into position so they can now help you to get into your position as you shift and move and recover from wherever it is that you were. And that's something that if you watch games great defensive teams they don't allow a whole lot of lasers they don't allow the ball to zip from side to side and and i've seen a number of videos i mean a huge fan of of you and your work and i'm thankful i'm a very appreciative of of all the knowledge that you share i know that takes a lot of time it takes a lot of heart it takes a lot of passion it helps me it helps every coach that's lucky enough or smart enough to follow it I see video clips that you show sometimes, like these clips on, I don't know, Twitter or whatever, and you see like the ball moving, going from, it gets swung, it goes here, it goes there, and the defense is like struggling, and eventually the defense breaks down. So if you can move the ball quickly, and everybody's a threat, so you, you pass, all right, penetration, get in the paint, kick out, extra pass, penetration, the ball's moving, and it's zipping all over the place, guys can't run and shift, and it, it's really hard to get those five guys on the same page, anyways. But to get them to move and shift when the ball is being lasered on the floor like that is borderline impossible. So I think we all sometimes we're, we're stuck appreciating the beauty of that pass, not thinking about how much harder that would have been or impossible that would have been to have that beautiful basketball if the defense could have made them throw a rainbow. So that's something that we
0: work on a lot. That's something we talk about. and That's something that we're trying to do. That's something that we're trying to do with every single possession. Well, I love this example of disruption, right? You're trying to disrupt in some way. And so you've talked about on the ball, but you also want to make it feel crowded off the ball, right? And then that becomes the challenge and the decision for you as a defensive coach is decide, okay, are we going to be in the helpline? Are we going to be a little bit farther out? So we force the passes, as you said, to more of the rainbow or wider.
1: Yeah, so, so now with this, with this next level, we start to creep into scouting. Right yep. and, and opponents and who we have, where who are we guarding, where would we rather have this guy shoot or drive? Do the, is it is it a team full of shooters? Unfortunately, here here in the BBL, there's a lot of very very good shooters, so it's it's not as easy to to only crowd because the ball can move very fast, and you're finding guys like, like the Chris Babs of the world that seemingly stand on on the stickers on the on the logos which are a good two steps back from the three point line and they shoot comfortably from there. So rotations get thrown out of whack. You have to make sure that you're trying to hold true to your principles while trying to stop their plays while trying to be always disruptive, but you have to know who the shooters are. How do we rotate? How far do I come off? How far am I willing to come off? Who am I? Do I really want to send off this line? Where do I want him to drive? Where's the help side going to come from? There's a lot of tactical decisions that have to be made So you, You need your philosophy, you need your principles, then you need your variations to account for the fact that you're
0: playing teams that have different players. So I don't, know. maybe you can give us a quick example. If we say defending Spain pick and roll and the ball handler is a shooter versus Spain pick and roll and the ball handler is not a shooter. So does that change philosophically how you would cover Spain pick and roll?
1: I think the Spain pick and roll, first of all, is, is a, is a beautiful, I don't even know if Spain invented the thing. We'll just go with the name. I'm not going to get in that yeah. debate. <laughs> yeah, so I, I think it's a, it's a beautiful play because it causes confusion. I would say the guard to guard screen is another action that causes confusion. I think that's, that's the ideal. That's what you want to do. So the zipper, the Iverson, all these different actions that we have, you, you're trying to get somebody open and trying to cause confusion to create an opening for a good shot. So with the Spain pick and roll. You have a guy, a ballgamer that's a great shooter, the beauty with that play is you have two other guys involved. So there's no pure way to answer that question without me knowing, is the big a great roller or does would he rather pop or is he an athlete or is he rather soft? Is the guy sitting in the back screen actually setting the screen or is he going to slip out? Is that guy a great shooter or is he more of a guy that wants to catch him it, or catch an attack? And I think that's the beauty of that play. I think there's there's some principles that we want to do that I'm not going to tell you that we want to do tactically to stop the Spain pick and roll. And that's not knowing who's good at what, according to those questions that I just asked you. Once we know that, we make adjustments. We'll make adjustments. But sometimes you can try to get too cute and try to over-prepare and over-plan and you forget that the guy that's dribbling can also pass. So if you're trying to include those other guys, if, if they are in the corners or if one of them cut, corner cut, you're trying to get that other guy to crowd it and then you could be by a back door somewhere. So I think there's a lot of things there and they go back to your initial principles. Did we fight through the screen or did we switch? Did we have good ball pressure? Did the guy that came out and switched on him have high hands? Did you try to send him back to his weak hand? Did he give him enough space because we would have rather him drove? Did we have the big guy get off soon enough or did we do something differently to try to completely disrupt them? I think that's the beauty of that play and the beauty of that action is you have three people involved that are for a split second involved with a ball that causes a lot of confusion. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, that's an action that we use and it's an action we, we have to defend often. And I don't know if there's one right way, offensively or defensively. I don't know if there's one right way and I think that's the... The beauty of that, because those are the things
0: that keep me up at night, trying to trying to find a solution to these problems that, that continue to evolve. Well, again, your answer, your non-answer and your answer are absolutely right, because it speaks to the variability that you've already talked about where there can't, there's no absolute to be able to cover Spain, pick and roll. There's too many variables to figure out. And that's why I think, I wish there was. yeah, I wish there don't was. we all, <laughs> yeah. we'd all be better coach this has been awesome love the terminology i love your focus on teaching your passion for the game all those things just curious as we wrap this up any uh, last thoughts or advice you'd like to share with the listeners
1: yeah i think as coaches we have a responsibility to share knowledge with each other i think we have a responsibility to to kind of expand upon this brotherhood you know i get called all the time through the course of the summer of coaches in different countries asking about players that i used to coach and they want to know what are they like in practice What's their mindset? What's their work ethic? And I think we owe that to each other to to kind of build this brotherhood. I think we also have an obligation to teach. And I think because of technology, sometimes we're so used to seeing these little snippets of games. I, I think it's very important that we as coaches encourage players also to watch full games. We need to get away from just watching highlights. We need to get away from just watching these small little sample sizes So so players understand how things fit into into a game through the course of its full context. I I had a player on my team last year named Luke Van Sloten, who, because of injuries, we actually started him. I had the youngest team in the Bundesliga. We finished one win out of the playoffs, and everybody told us what a great job we did. We only had one American. It wasn't good enough, right? I'm I'm a very hungry, ambitious, greedy guy. It wasn't good enough. We were one win short. It wasn't good enough. I wanted more. So all those congratulations, I'm polite, I'm courteous, but I don't wanna pat on the back for something like that. This kid, Luke Van Sloan, because of injuries, he started 15, 16 games for us in the BBL as an 18 year old kid, an 18 year old kid. The kid's brain is like a 30 year old man. That guy is, he's a walking basketball computer. He watches as many games, maybe more, I'm not gonna give him that much credit, but I'll say maybe more for the sake of this conversation. He watches as many games as I do through the course of the week, right? He watches every BBL game, watches I don't know how many EuroLeague games. He's a basketball junkie. And his eyes, what he's seen, what he's experienced, what he's felt, was he, he relives these moments. He comes in the gym talking to his teammates about, hey, did you see that play last night? Or, hey, with 32 seconds left, this. Or in the second quarter, did you notice they, they started switching? His brain is a – he's a walking coach. I love him for it. Right. He has huge talent. That kid's going to be a yearly player for many, many, many years unless he makes the NBA. He's going to be a high-level pro for many years. He's huge. He's six eight. He's big. He can shoot. He can handle. But his brain is what sets him apart. And I think that's something that people, coaches included, sometimes we look at the guys like, "Wow, look at his wingspan. Wow, look at his vertical. Look how fast he runs." Or he can really shoot. But the brain. That thing inside there is gonna, his motor, how hard is he gonna work? How much does he love the game? Is he willing to fight through adversity? And does he study? Because I think at the end of the day, the the smarter the players you have, uh, I wish I had a bunch of geniuses on the floor because they would make me look like a genius, right? I, I think the more that we can encourage as coaches, players to study the game and watch full games and talk about those games with teammates or other coaches, the better. And I think that's how we can make sure that the game grows and evolves and that we're all on the same page. And I think that's that's the direction that most coaches should kind of be aware of is, is the brain, the mind, the human mind. It's special. The awareness, the anticipation skills that come with knowing and reading the game are invaluable. If you ask me to watch a soccer game or I studied soccer for one year, it's not the same as some guy that's watched a million games and played soccer for 10 years. So I
0: think the more that young players' eyes see the game, and I'm talking about a full game, the better off they are. Uh, it's great stuff. And uh, you know, I followed you on Twitter for a while and uh, really enjoyed you sharing the game as well. And, you know, you're a professional coach who still connects back to player development. So you share enough stuff that gives us an insight. And I appreciate that as well. <laughs> Can't thank you enough, coach, for sharing the game with us. Thank you for having me. Thank you for having me.